So, uh, how y'all doing? No one's fine. <laughs> yeah, if um, <laughs> if you were to walk into uh, the church office like on any given day in the week, or maybe even the month leading up to like Christmas or Easter, and you asked like, "Hey, how's it going?" I have it on good authority that the answer that you would receive is. <laughs> It's fine. <laughs> but I also have it on really good authority that that is a lie. <laughs> we are not fine. We're trying to figure out what we forgot, trying to figure out how we're going to make this whole thing happen. And so it, it's, it's just the way that it is. But, uh, you know, the, the pre-holiday struggle around here. And I assume every church office across uh, the face of the earth is not the, the point of me telling you this, but keep it in mind, store it in the back of your mind somewhere that this is a reality. And so, you know, around those times we could use your prayers, maybe some hugs and we like candy. So, <laughs> you know, but the point uh, is that even though uh, things are most certainly not fine, our, our natural inclination is to pretend that everything's under control, that we're okay, even good. We're, we're ahead of the game when really we just aren't. <laughs> and this isn't just a thing that happens in church offices a few times a year. This is a thing that has become so normal for all of us when we are dealing with feelings and, and situations that we just don't know how to process or that we want to hide. Everything is fine. See, fine means I don't understand what I'm feeling. Fine means don't ask me any more questions. Fine means I'm stuffing my emotions. Fine means I'm afraid that if I tell you the truth, both you and I are going to come face to face with the fact that I'm just not okay. So perhaps this is one of our greatest missteps as, as a human race. See, I'm fine is one of our most commonly used phrases. And while it seems harmless on the surface, what it actually does is it puts up this dividing wall between us. It sets us apart from one another. It says, I've got this figured out. I'm good on my own. And when we say this enough, and we have this attitude for long enough, it becomes a lie that we tell others and we tell ourselves, and it's a lie that we begin to believe. And when we believe that we're fine, when we're most certainly not, then we believe that we don't need anyone else. We believe that we don't really need God. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the danger of just pretending to be fine and how we can actually overcome being fine and move into a life that is flourishing, despite the fact that everything that is going on around us might literally be on fire. I know that we're just wrapping up a sermon series on forgiveness and like now we're moving into another series that 
might be a bit heavy for some of us. So, I mean, I'll just be the first one to say, sorry. <laughs> but I'll also be the first one to remind you that you have to forgive us. So, okay. <laughs> and so it's fine, right? <laughs> We're going to call fine what fine is. It means feelings internalized, but not expressed. See what we did there. And fine, well, fine is a sign that we aren't practicing emotional intelligence. We aren't processing and dealing with our emotions. We are simply stuffing them and hiding them in an effort to save our face or to save our heart. And the problem is, well, the problem is that it's not sustainable. It doesn't work. We just keep stuffing and stuffing and stuffing until it feels like we're drowning in a sea of unprocessed emotions that we can barely keep our head above the water. And each week, each day, each hour, it gets harder and harder to breathe until finally we come face to face with reality. There's this guy named Paul and uh, Paul was no stranger to suffering, to having a hard life. And, and he wrote uh, a letter to uh, a church in Rome who also, as a community, knew firsthand what it felt like to suffer day in and day out. And he shared these words with them. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God for the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption and the redemption of our bodies for in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is, is not hope for who hopes for what is seen. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, Paul's words are a reminder to us that, that suffering is so universal that even the earth that we walk on experiences it. It's universal. And guess what Paul says? I can tell you what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are fine. <laughs> he says that they're not worth comparing with what is to come. Things are difficult now, and we might not see what's coming to us down the pipe, but we wait for it with patience because we know we know that it is going to be so, so good. And so maybe the most difficult of our sufferings 
the most difficult one to see through is the suffering that we go through when we experience grief. Grief is one of those perplexing human experiences because of the deep, deep way that it expresses itself in our lives. Grief and mourning are unavoidable aspects of the human condition. And psychologists have been studying grief for a long time. And one of the, the widely accepted understandings of how we as human beings process it is called the stages of grief. And there's a, a simplified version uh, is that we move kind of in this continuum from one point to another. And we start out with denial. We move to anger and then depression and then bargaining. And finally, into acceptance. While this idea is kind of subject to scrutiny, and I'm pretty sure that we can jump around from place to place and even be in multiple places at once. The general principle is that at some point, at some point we come to a place where we accept the fact that we have experienced a loss and that we are never going to get what we lost back and that it's time for us to move into a new phase of life. I think what is most important for us as, as followers of Jesus and believers that the best is yet to come is that there is hope beyond the pain of loss. And that we make certain conclusions when we arrive at acceptance. And I think when we get there, we have two options. We can choose to be hardened and to just settle with, this is fine. This is the way the world is and accept that there's, there's no hope for a better future. Or we can choose to put our faith in the unknown in the power that Jesus has to restore that broken and missing piece of our lives in a new and an unforeseen way. This is one of Jesus's most powerful teachings, which he so plainly states in the opening of uh, his sermon on the Mount. And you may have heard this a time or two in your life, but he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And those are like really nice words, but (laughs) I think it's a bit better if we see them played out in Jesus's life. And so in John's gospel, there's this story that really highlights the grief associated with loss and the response that, that God desires from us when we're faced with it. And so Jesus had this friend he lived in a town called Bethany and his name was Lazarus. He was the brother of two of Jesus's uh, closest friends, uh, two sisters named Mary and Martha. And it turns out that Lazarus became very ill. And so Mary and Martha sent out for Jesus to come so that he might heal their brother. So when Jesus got the news that Lazarus was ill, he makes a strange decision to stay where he is for two days. And then he and his disciples head out towards Bethany to go and see Lazarus. 
And long story short, when they get to Bethany, they find out that Lazarus has died four days earlier. Well, the disciples find that out because Jesus already knew. And what Jesus walks into is a scene where Martha and Mary are being consoled by a group of people who are only identified by John as some Jews. So we're going to circle around to that because that's important. But uh, when Martha goes out to meet Jesus, she's not happy with him. She's like, dude, if you would only have been here, like, first of all, where you been? If you were here, my brother would still be alive, which is that fair point. <laughs> And then she pretty much asks him to bring Lazarus back from the dead. And, and she goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say some famous words about he is how he is the resurrection and the life. And Martha confesses, you know, I still believe that you are the, the Messiah and the son of God. And then this is what happens next. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister, Mary. And told her privately, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And so when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. And so they followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to Jesus and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. And so there's a couple of things that we need to look at here to really understand what's going on. And remember, I said, we we're going to circle back to this, the Jews thing. Uh, and so these are these people who are with Mary and Martha and, and it, it's kind of a derogatory like name for us in our day and age. Um, so I'm not really even going to say that it's right, but, but John in his gospel consistently uses the term some Jews or the Jews to talk about a certain population of Jewish people, particularly those who opposed Jesus. See, all of the disciples were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. And most of the people that they encountered on a daily basis were all, well, Jewish. But what John is pointing out is that these persons were the Jewish people who were skeptical at best towards Jesus and conspirators against him at worst. And in this case, we're most likely dealing with a group of skeptics. See, Mary and Martha, both having had a deep relationship with Jesus, had a faith that Jesus could have, in fact, healed their brother Lazarus's illness. And so they're grieving the fact that what they believed would happen, what they believed to be true, that Jesus would heal their brother, did not, in fact, occur. They're standing in the gap between their hopes and their reality. And so while they wait for Jesus, some folks came by and did what good folks do. 
They tried to console the sisters. They tried to convince them to, to leave their unrealistic expectations that some rogue rabbi from Nazareth was actually going to save their brother's life and, and help them prepare for reality and help them prepare Lazarus's body for a proper Jewish burial. And you can't really fault them from their perspective. They're just doing what's right. But Jesus Jesus is a little bit perturbed by this. And so another thing that we need to know is that we've got to understand that the, the last verse there, like our English just doesn't do us a lot of justice. We see Jesus was greatly disturbed. And we tend to think that this is saying that Jesus was sad. An emotion that we can identify with given the times. But that word in Greek means more of an expression of anger or displeasure. See, Jesus sees his friends and, and all these people who had come to plant seeds of doubt about him, weeping over the loss of Lazarus. And he's, for lack of a better word, he's kind of ticked off. But why? <laughs> why are you mad at these people for doing exactly what people do when they experience loss? Well, I think that Jesus is like a different kind of mad. He's not like meet me in the parking lot at six o'clock mad. He's more like disappointed parent mad, which is way worse. Jesus is ticked off. He's, he's, he's mad and he's also deeply moved, which really means that he's, he's troubled. So let's see what happens next. Everybody is weeping and Jesus is disappointed, dad, mad and troubled. And this is what happens next. He said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to weep. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Right. That's why Jesus is ticked. Jesus is feeling the things that he's feeling because Jesus faced with the truth that he knows that his friend has died, has a deep emotional reaction. He, he cries. And in the presence of all of this emotion, these people continue to take this as an opportunity to discredit him and his mission. You're probably wanting to know like, you know, what happens next? And while well, Jesus does what only Jesus can do, and he brings Lazarus back to life, but that's not really the point of this particular message. That's something that Jesus and only Jesus could do. The point of this whole thing is that Jesus is deeply moved or honestly deeply hurt by the lack of faith that this crowd of people is showing in the midst of their suffering, not only their suffering, but, but Jesus's own suffering. Martha weeps, Mary weeps, the Jews weep, Jesus weeps, and everybody is feeling this loss here. Everybody is experiencing the sting of death and Jesus, well, Jesus is inviting them to exercise just a little bit of faith 
and a little bit of hope in his ability to make something new happen. But they can't seem to do it. This whole narrative is framed and surrounded by Jesus' teaching that he is the resurrection and the life, and then him actually giving someone who was dead life. He's just inviting these people to have faith in the midst of their shared grief that he is going to make something beautiful out of this mess that they have found themselves in. And this is where we stand day in and day out. These people had a choice, hope in what they can't yet see or grow calloused and skeptical. And so do we. You see, grief requires us to mourn. Mourning is good. Mourning helps us move beyond the place where we are stuck. We're stuck with our emotions, stuck just pretending to be fine. And grief and mourning are not just things that happen when someone dies. No, grief and mourning are the reality that we live with every single day when we have to deal with any type of loss, the the loss of a friendship, the loss of relationships, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a job, the loss of the future that we saw for ourselves that has just slipped away. All of these things cause in us deep emotions because they remind us that regardless of how hard we work or how good our intentions are or how faithful we are, that the world is filled with stu- with suffering and that we are subject to it still. And Jesus, Jesus is simply inviting us to hope in the unseen realities and possibilities that loom on the horizon. Yeah, I moved to Florida um, 10 years ago and uh, I had a, a head and a heart filled with hope and expectation. One hope that has come true. I have not shoveled snow in 10 years, <laughs> but over the next two years after I got here, I watched as my entire world burned down around me. First of all, I wasn't following Jesus, so I wasn't starting off too well anyway. But I was married at the time and we were dealing with infertility and it didn't take long for that pain to drive us apart. And it didn't take long for the pain of us being driven apart to tear me down. Bring me into this downward spiral where I was just pretending that I was fine. And as I pretended I was fine, just took a drink after a drink after a drink to remind myself that I was fine. I didn't need anyone. I didn't need any help. And week after week, I remained in this toxic cycle, unable to deal with the grief of what I was losing, unable to mourn in a healthy way. So I just kept on finding myself until I had no marriage, no job, no place where I could really call home. And I was just a shell of a human, but it was here 
at this place in my life where I found what I had been searching for all along. You see, while all I could do was look back at, at what I had lost and, and how my life was so much different than I had hoped that it would become, it was right here when I couldn't see what was going to happen that I found the church. And I found in that church some people who taught me. And they taught me how to heal. How to start holding on to the promises that Jesus gives to make beauty out of the ashes, even if I caused the ashes to be there. And when I look at my wife and our baby, I'm reminded of the faithfulness of God. God, I didn't know that this was coming. But when I decided to, to stop holding on to what I thought my life was supposed to look like, I was able to step into the life that God was planning for me all of these years. And this is not an overnight process. I know that more than anyone. And so if you just aren't there yet, like <laughs> I get it. I'm not saying that you need to get out today and be healed. Be past your grief. It's just important that while you feel what you're feeling, that you do not lose hope that you don't lose that something to hold on to that promise of a new and resurrected life. But if it's time, then this is our task. And so ask yourself, how are you doing? Just fine. Why? What piece of the life that you were thought that you were supposed to have is still haunting you? And what would it look like if you let go of that and started to look and let God reveal to you the life that he's creating. So let's pray. God, you are good. We're grateful for the fact that you had a very human experience. Now you came and you experienced this world alongside of us. Now you know the great sorrow that is found in loss. But also that you are the one who came and showed us that there's hope. Hope of a new life for us now. And hope of a new life for this world in the future. And so, God, we just cling to that ultimate reality. And we just ask that through the power of your spirit, you would remind us day in and day out of the beauty that you have planned for us and for this world. God, give us the courage to hang on to hope. Lead us to be people with open hearts. 
who are willing to receive the gifts that you have coming to us. Help us let go of the past and to embrace the future. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.